1: And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Back to the Future Part 2 is over. You're damn right you made a mistake. Do you remember the future? You've got to come back with me. Where? Where? future are we back we're back hey! what do you mean we're in the future October 21st
0: 2015 Marty we're gonna be able to see our wedding
1: wow the future I gotta check this out doc look what happens Whoa! to your son <laughs> oh. He's a complete wimp. Don't talk to anyone. You've been looking. Pop. Hey, look. Don't touch anything. I need to worry. come
0: Ever on, come, on, come, on, come on. Yeah! I try not to look at anything. I didn't invent the time machine to win at gambling.
1: I can't lose. I invented the time machine to travel through time. Hey, Doc, I'm all for that. What's wrong with making a few bucks on the side? Is that too telling? Andy, was that line that I picked no, too telling funny. about
0: how I felt about this? I, movie? I think it <laughs> I think it works well. I think it works well.
1: All right. Well, uh, here we are, Back to the Future Part Two, part of our Back to the Future series, uh, and on the next Real Film Podcast, which is what you're listening to right now. Thank you for showing up. We're rolling in number two. I understand, as I understand it, they never really intended on making a part two or three when they were making part one, and yet here we stand with part two.
0: Here we stand
1: with uh, with part two. Uh, you know this.
0: From my knowledge was the first time that a filmmaker, a team was basically given the opportunity to film two films back to back, like almost as one to kind of create a cohesive story, right? and uh, yeah. it's the sort of thing that so rarely happens uh it's it happened here and then i i mean really i think is lord of the rings that really kind of uh became the next thing where that uh, took place and it's just it's not something that studios are are really excited about doing because you're really committing to i i guess the matrix 2 and 3 those were filmed back to back i believe but but it is one of those things where A studio has to feel comfortable about the fact that it's going to be a success. And if, I mean, you know, if let's just take, for example, if the Golden Compass team had said, we're going to, you know, make this whole series of films, give us a whole bunch of money to do it. And then the first film came out and it was as bad as it was they would have, you know, lost a bunch of money and then they would be, you know, sitting on these films like, well, what do we do? Should we just release them and see if we can make anything back or are we out all that extra huge chunk of money? And that's the challenge. And so I, I you know, I don't know. The story about this one about kind of figuring out what they were going to do with with the with the story in order to properly expand it and turn it into a trilogy, I don't know how well it went. I feel like they had an idea where they wanted it to end, and then we're trying to figure out what can we do in the middle to get us there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. How can we make it a trilogy out of a out of a thing that was already over? And and so to the extent that, I mean, clearly, the end of the first movie indicates that there is more story to happen. Right. So well. That's where some of the conflict in my head exists, because some of the stories I'm reading are, yeah, we wrote this movie and we thought this was going to be the end of it. But clearly at the time of production, they knew something more was coming. There's a to be continued.
0: Yes. Right. Right. Which was designed, I don't know, in, in the in the scope of what people like Spielberg and Zemeckis and. Uh, you know, their kind of the and entertainment like that, that sense of storytelling, when you end a film like back to the future with that, it just, it seems like a fun way to kind of do it where it could have just been left as a fun cliffhanger, which honestly feels very much inspired by, exactly the type of storytelling that uh, that Spielberg was doing with Lucas when they were doing the Raiders of the Lost Ark stories. And it was very much kind of like that, going back to those old serials. And it almost seemed like ending it that way was kind of giving it this spin of a uh, kind of a, a, a serial from the old days where it's, it's, you know, will be or to be continued. It's like, you know, if they ever came back to it, uh, you know, it, 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 I don't think it necessarily, they needed to, the fact that it was a success, I suppose, spurred them on to
1: say, yep, let's do it. Well, it is, it it is a strange conceit. We know that the second two movies were made back to back. We're starting. It feels like I, I need to say I'm both watching this movie as part of, uh, as part of the trilogy and also as part one of a duology, like of a pair of movies that came after back to the future, which I dearly loved. So, um, let's see how it goes. Well, Back to the Future Part Two was rated PG at the time of
0: its release for some mild violence and profanity and
1: uh, one frightening and intense scene. Huh. Can't even figure out what that scene would be. What is the most frightening and intense scene? Hanging an elderly man upside down for an extended period of time? <laughs> What's funny about, like, the, the,
0: the parent's guide in IMDb is, like, They all, they don't always give you the reasons when it's a PG film as to why. Yeah. But people come, can come in and they can put in here, well, this is some violence that happens and it is mild or moderate or, you know, intense or whatever. (laughs) So somebody put in. Frightening intense scene, moderate. In one of the scenes taking place during the events the first movie, we see Biff violently grabbing Lorraine and telling her that she's his girl, in his mind, also in the same violent manner. Just before, Lorraine kicks him in the knee and smashes his head with the box that she's carrying and running away, with Biff screaming that he's going to marry her someday, again, in his mind. Okay, well, I'll take
1: it. Mm -hmm. All right, Andy, right out of the gate, uh, this movie, I can't stop thinking about The controversial recasting decisions uh, around this film. Now, the first one, which I think is going to be a much shorter part of our conversation, is the recasting of Jennifer, uh, that the second and third movie, uh, we get Elizabeth Shue in the role of Jennifer, which means that they had to reshoot the last scene from uh, the first movie and give us Elizabeth Shue in that uh, in that role, which is essentially a shot for shot uh, likeness of the first film. So, shot for
0: shot, but weirdly always feels uh, (laughs) stagey. Like, no matter what they're doing, it always feels like they're never quite capturing the feel of the
1: end of the first film because the end of the first film comes with momentum, right? It's like you're you've already had the experience. I think picking it up where they did was tricky and and you know, it's a choice. The fact that um you know, that the, the uh, Jennifer was recast, uh, you know, apparently was because of personal reasons. She had originally intended to be in the the other two movies and and jumped out of the franchise for personal reasons. I don't know the Do you know any more about that? Her mother was diagnosed with cancer.
0: And so she put her whole career on hold so that she could uh,
1: focus on helping take care of her mom. I certainly... Would never grudge that, though she is missed, I think, in the in the second and and third movies. And controversially, you know, the controversy is, oh, my gosh, they had to go figure out they had written this part where at the end of the movie, she's in the DeLorean. uh, This is Galen Zemeckis. And now they had to figure out how to reshoot all of that with the the new actress, uh, you know, with Elizabeth Shue to give us that consistency. Again, there are always choices. And they were sort of saddled with this one. I, I have no issues with Elizabeth Shue. I think she's a wonderful performer in her own right. If they, if this was done by George Lucas, he would have just gone back to the
0: first film and digitally replaced all of Claudia Wells with Elizabeth Shue as well.
1: Yes, which actually brings us to our second recasting.
0: Well, hold on, hold on real quick. I, I, yeah. I, before we get to that, I just want to say one of the other weird things in the re- doing of the end of the first film as to make it the beginning of this film there's a weird pause that doc brown makes when uh when marty asks him what it what like cuz they find out that they're married they find out all this stuff they say what do we become a holes or something and in the in the new beginning here he kind of pauses for a moment before he says no no, no you're fine uh which he didn't do in the first film and yeah, it's just I don't know. It, it speaks to again just kind of that weirdness with the whole thing and the way it plays, where it just is like, why is he doing that? And I guess it's because they've they because of how they've had to you know write him as a character, you know specifically. But I don't know. Again, it just it, the whole thing starts off feeling false, and it it it's frustrating the way that this film begins.
1: Yeah, false, and I think in the false in the spirit of the unreliable narrator to me, like like we suddenly can't trust what Doc is doing as the as the vessel of the the one who has been in the future and now knows things that Marty and and um, Jennifer don't know and we as an audience don't know. Yeah. Um. So okay. Uh. That we get then we get to Crispin Glover, and in this opening sequence, we do have a shot of George McFly, uh, standing in the in the doorway, uh, with Lorraine. The old ones. Uh, and th- so in that sequence, uh, we have, I think that sequence is reshot or, or is using, is reusing footage from episode one, right? Yeah, because it's just, it was the shot of them looking out
0: the door. I, I, I think it's exactly the same shot from the first film, yes.
1: Right. But we have later in the film, we get Crispin Glover replaced uh, with. Jeffrey Weissman and Jeffrey Weissman is is wearing all kinds of prosthetics and he's hung upside down and he's doing all these things to obscure the fact that Chris Glover is not in the film. Uh, how for just at, on the surface, how does it hit you that that this part was recast? When I watched the film initially, I
0: don't think I would have realized that he was recast because the only time you see uh, Weissman as him is when he's upside down. And right. it, it feels very much like, oh, let's come up with something to make it even more obscure for us to not be able to tell exactly what was uh, th- that he was recast, you know, and, and to that extent, I guess it worked. What's funny is Wiseman actually said that they uh, they that he was scripted to be hanging upside down to torture Crispin during the shoot as payback for the headaches he caused on the filming
1: of the first movie. Right. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's. Right. It is kind of, I think that's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> mixed messages uh, about w- why Glover is not in this movie. It, apparently it started with a uh, salary dispute. He wanted to be paid a lot more. He wanted to be paid a lot more because uh, he didn't, uh, according to him, he didn't agree with the message of the film, said that it was about rewarding financial gain using these time gimmicks rather than uh, love. He wanted love to be the message, and he said the other cast members were getting more, and that he was getting much less than them. Right, right. And then he was out. But according to Bob Gale, they made all kinds of efforts to get him in the film, and to the point where um, you know his agents called them and said, "Crispin feels he made a mistake. He would like to have this conversation again. Yeah, come on back. Let's have the conversation." But the the money was just a non-starter, and so. That's when things get a little bit, a little bit dicey, potentially, depending on your perspective of these things. Gale goes back to uh, Universal, the team, I should say, the team goes back to Universal and says, you know, he's not going to be in this. What are we going to do? Um, we're we're going to uh, obscure his, his part. But what if we recast him? Can we use old footage? Yes. And can we recast him and make him look as close to Crispin in the film as possible, as close to this other character? As possible. His example now, many years later, this was on the 35th anniversary, I think, interview. He compared it to Harry Potter that when Richard Harris died, they recast Michael Gambon and made him look like Dumbledore as portrayed by Richard Harris. Does that example accurately reflect what is going on here to you? No, no, I think the
0: example doesn't work uh, for several reasons. One, uh, it's a, an actor who died and obviously can't come back to complain about the fact that, you know, how dare you recast someone in my likeness. Uh, it's also based on a character from a book. And so it's like you're, you're just feeling somebody else to play that character. And, and so I, I feel like in no way does it work
1: uh, as, a, as, an, as a good example. I don't think so either, and and Glover is uh, is angry, and he calls it theft. And at the time when he saw what had happened to that character, the fact that they put Weissman in prosthetics to make him look like Glover, uh, and then he saw the performance and he saw some of the stills, he was angry, angry to the point that he's still very, very angry today with Bob Gale and holds a a, a stiff grudge against Bob Gale. He says it's theft. He says they stole my likeness in order to recreate this character that then is attributed to me because he now attempts to look like me and that people will see this character not knowing any better and attribute his performance, which is terrible, to me, says Glover, right? That this was uh and, and this then uh leads to a lawsuit where he sues successfully to the tune of 3 quarters of a million dollars um that uh the film and the producers uh illegally used his his likeness to make this movie and what is interesting
0: is uh because of all of this uh the screen actors guild actually has new um, elements in their agreements between actors and and uh, producers saying that uh, that producers are or that producers and actors are not allowed to do this to reproduce the likeness of other actors unless there's explicit permission in the contract it says it has been considered a key case in personality rights for actors with increased increasing use of improved special effects and digital techniques in which actors may have agreed to appear in one part of a production but have their likenesses be used in another without their agreement. And so I think this is largely why now you have these studios coming up with these clauses saying, you know, you're going to be used in this film. And once you do, we're going to own that likeness and everything about it so we can do whatever we want with it. And I think it's become a tool for big studios like Marvel and Disney to kind of grab onto this and say we once you're in our thing we own that forever. And yeah, you know, I suppose a lot of actors who are appearing in these big franchises, you know, they they don't care as much and I'm sure that they're getting compensated better than Glover did at the time. Um but it is certainly a thing to be aware of as to how people can be used now and
1: essentially have their likenesses owned for these things. So I can see both. I, I feel like I can see both sides. If I were in Glover's shoes, I, I think he, I, I would be angry. I would be frustrated because we were at a time that that was not explicitly set out. And also, I can totally see how the both sag is looking to protect their their actors, their performers, and producers, and studios from this kind of rift, and then the the language uh, in the in these sort of governing agreements is is now very very clear on what you can and cannot do with likenesses, and uh, has led to a number of initiatives from SAG-AFTRA under the banner of "Protect My Image," uh, both in right to publicity uh, language and right to use in future creative productions language. So, I think that's fascinating that that Chris. Glover's role is the one that that feels like the first domino to get pushed over uh, and has led to so much uh, so much both consternation and litigation and and uh, conversation about these issues that this movie I had not remembered that this movie was central to that discussion.
0: I don't know if I yeah, I don't don't know if I knew it, but something else that I think is interesting that I don't I don't I can't say for sure because I don't see anything about this uh, as proof but have you ever seen back to the future part 2 or back to the future part 3 sold individually or have you only ever seen them sold as part of a trilogy as part of a set of 3 uh because i was wondering cuz every time i've i've looked at it or bought it it was always like the back to the future trilogy and i was wondering if that was part of this whole thing with glover where and again it doesn't say so i'm just completely speculating but the fact that I and maybe you have. I just don't recall ever seeing Back to the Future Part Two II or Three sold as separate items. Uh, it does make me wonder if there was this thing with Glover where they're like, "Let's just sell it as a trilogy. We'll market it all as you know, um, either the trilogy or it's all you know the first film." But they we're selling it as a trilogy, so they don't have to give him any residuals
1: for it or something. That's really interesting because I, I well, I first I don't I don't know um, I, in terms of. Physical, but in digital, you can buy it separately. You can buy the separate entry. I'm looking at it in the iTunes store, the Apple TV store right now, um and so you can get that movie individually. So you can't, okay, into as a digital copy. Yeah, 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 as a digital copy. But I don't know how, in terms of you know physical media, if if it's sold that way. Yeah, that's that's an interesting theory. Yeah, yeah, who knows? Okay, well, that's sort of the setup on getting these things made, and then we get to the movie itself.
0: Boy Dewey.
1: What'd you think? This has never been
0: my favorite of the trilogy. It's it still is fun to watch. There are elements that I enjoy, and and what I enjoy the most about it is the ambition that they clearly had in kind of coming up with a way to craft this story that involves the future, a revised version of the present, and the past. Again, the uh, so we're getting a much broader uh, kind of journey of time travel and really the repercussions of time travel, and, and so I enjoy the scope that Zemeckis and Gale crafted with their story. I just have so many issues with it that uh, you know, as as enjoyable as it can be, it just I I, I just always cringe as I watch this film because of so many things, so many things that I struggle with in the movie.
1: Are these issues or are they quibbles?
0: Oh, no, they're issues. They're, they're, they're full, they're
1: fully blossomed, bloomed. Yeah, these quibbles
0: have, have been watered and, and taken care of. Matured. And
1: and yeah, they've grown into full-fledged issues. (laughs) Okay, that's really good to know because I, you know, I think I told you that I have always loved, loved this movie. Like when I was a kid and I saw it for the first time, I was entranced by it. And uh, watching it uh, again this weekend, I was less than entranced by it. It hit me at just the right time uh, as a teenager. And I saw this movie and I was just super into the future stuff. And uh, interestingly, on reading it, it seems like the future stuff is the stuff that Zemeckis and Gail were less interested in. But that was the stuff that really intrigued me. And frankly, the first time I saw that hoverboard, that single convention in this movie made me just fall in love with it. I, I like I barely remembered anything else about the movie apart from that hoverboard and the park reveal, like that whole park tour sequence that we talked about last week the the homage to to Back to the Future 1 with this, the park reveal was awesome to me. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. I love it when filmmakers just play like this with so little substance behind it. They just had a blast. And And then the rest of the movie, you know, we get into sort of the rules of time travel and the almanac and the handling of, of all these multiple characters. And then then we get to have a different conversation. But I want to start with the stuff that jumped out at me in the park. First, because that's that's the love stuff. And then we can talk about everything else. (laughs) One. That Gail said we knew we weren't going to have flying cars by the year 2015, but God, we had to have those in our movie, and I love those. I love the flying cars. I love the thirty nine thousand dollar Goldie hover car conversion for old cars. Uh, I love the composites. They have these landing ramps for for flying cars to come down into the into the park, and that those transitions were super fun. I love Jaws Uh, nineteen. You know, I I love the the hover or the three D shark coming out and and biting him um i love the uh it's just awful stuff that you have you must have the hostage special when he goes into the into the diner and ron reagan and the ayatollah are fighting uh, to take his order i love all of that uh so uh, the entire spectacle of the park just it, it tickles my brain i'll stop talking now what did you think of the park is it too much is that the thing that blossoms your issues Well, w-
0: when you say the park you you mean when they they come down to Hill Valley off of the flying car the flying car freeway, yeah and they come the down, they come down so to the silly. square the, the universal uh, town square, yep in the future uh it's fine it's it's funny because as I was watching uh, it as I was watching fine. it, the first thing that I said to my son who watched it with me was like it looks just like it does in Lego dimensions. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we had a lot of fun playing the Back to the Future part of that story. Uh, yeah, flying you know with your little hoverboard and everything. Uh, they they do a good job with it. Uh, I um, the future is where I find a lot of issues, and I know uh you know they weren't trying to make a like a realistic like what would real what would 2015 really look like, and like you said, the whole flying car thing and stuff. It it just. They took it down a road in so many ways where it's just like, it's almost too much. I mean, yes, the flying car conversion with, with uh, Goldie Wilson, that's fine. Um, I like a lot of the the nods to things that they did, like kind of more futuristic sorts of things. The Jaws 19 is, uh, it's kind of okay. It, it's never been as exciting as I feel like it could have been, especially because if it's a Jaws movie and that's the shark you're getting, it's just, it looks really cheesy. I don't know, just like the and I know fashion is one of those things, like fashion is is always a strange thing, but they did some things with like the fashion choices and stuff that just ended up being a lot more silly than I think they needed to be, and I guess that's my thing with the future is they they decided you know let's just we don't wanna try predicting what the real future would look like, let's just go wacky, yeah, and I feel like that's the direction they went, and i i I think I enjoyed it more in 1989 than i did any time after that every time i revisit this film i'm always like it always goes down a notch for me because it's just the wackiness ends up being just yeah it's just a little too wacky and so there are things that that i i I really struggle with as i as i go through that Uh, but there are elements i like like the way that they play with some of the things like the two little kids, one of which I don't know if you caught Elijah Wood in in his early little role as one of the kids trying to get the video game to work. Yeah. Um, Using your hands. It's a baby toy. <laughs> well, And that's and that was one of the things that I actually enjoyed, like when you have that thing and he's trying to show how cool he is. But then the, these kids are like, oh, God, that's so dumb. That was cool. Like when the little girl, when he gives her back her hoverboard, like those callbacks that they did. And she's like, Who, why do I want that when I got this pit bull, you know, and she's got Biff's yeah. board. Like there were some fun, uh, fun ways that they were playing with some of the elements from the first film. Um, in this one, it just ended up being too goofy, though. And that that was my big, uh, my biggest struggle with showing up in
1: Hill in Valley before we get to the characters. Okay. So then let's get to the characters. We have a, we have a lot of them uh, and multiple versions of all of them.
0: Yeah. So we start first with uh, I feel like as we as we get into the characters in the future, I think the first person we need to deal with is Jennifer and and the handling of Jennifer as we get to the future and and through the course of the film, because that is one of my biggest problems with her is like, let's just let's bring her to the future, but let's just dismiss her because we don't really need her.
1: Yeah, it felt like, like when you read Gail talk about how we don't, we, we had to write her into this script and it shoehorn and shoehorn her into this adventure we wanted to have because we put her in the car in the last movie. That's exactly what the movie feels like they're doing with her is trying to find a way to most efficiently write her out of the story and That sucks. Like, that sucks. That's like a failure of creativity, first of all, to make her a useful character. Oh, it was the
0: worst. It's like, let's bring her, but then let's knock her out and dump her in an alley because she's a girl and she's, you know, she's having hysterics. And, you know, it's just the whole thing was so (laughs) like, oh, it just it was painful to watch. Then it was painful to watch. Now, I, I do enjoy her when they bring her back to her house and, like, that whole thing of, of discovering, like, the, the, you know, we get to kind of a window in on their lives through her eyes. Uh, but then they do the same thing when they go back to 1985, and it's the wrong 1985. They're like, she's just sleeping. We'll just lay her on the porch, and she'll be fine. She'll wake up and think the whole thing was a dream. And... And I know I'm going way too far into the film now, but the way that they write that out with her and Einstein saying the whole thing will ripple across time and everything will be fixed yeah. and they'll just wake up right back in their old time. I'm like, no wonder like the people in later time traveling <laughs> movies say this movie is dumb. Like, well, that's not yeah. like that makes no sense, especially in a film yeah. that just it, talked about all these different timelines. Like, well, now you've got this second timeline. It's like, well. They're going to stay. What they did was leave
1: her in a crappy timeline, is what they did. They forked it and screwed her over and the dog. Uh, Especially because they have no sense that where they are is terrible. And this is one of my central problems with the movie that they are standing in a place which is covered in graffiti. And I never noticed those bars on those windows there. Like those kinds of things didn't ring any bells to these characters. They were just tossed off as like sidelines. And I found that so troublesome. Like there is, and it leads to, I think that's the same sort of mentality in handling these, these scenes writ large that lead to how ridiculous it is in the final action sequence. When Marty is trying to grab the, the almanac back and has so many instances where he's running around the school or in the car on the hoverboard, hanging off the side of the car where Biff is not that dumb. Like he would have noticed Marty in every. Marty pulls out the walkie-talkie and starts talking to Doc in the back seat of the car, and Biff doesn't notice. Like, what do they expect of us? It's ridiculous. It makes me so mad. He keeps looking at his radio, like, "What is this feedback? Like, what's this going on?" And he looks over his shoulder. I refuse to believe that Biff's peripheral vision is so bad that he wouldn't see a body lying down in the back seat of the car. Well, he's under a blanket, Pete. Come on. So, so that's the that is the whole like that sort of mentality is. It's like the Spielberg thing that we you know we talked about during. Um, uh, crystal skull, right? I think we really started talking about this whole idea that what what happens outside of camera, we don't get to see. Well, this is like uh, somebody told Zemeckis and Gale that rule and didn't actually explain it because it's completely violated every time. Spielberg does these kinds of of reveals so much better when he's in the director's chair, I think. And this was just bad. It was just bad. Took me out of the movie every single time. It's... Yeah.
0: A lot of issues. Okay, well let's let's go back to the future, <laughs> but still <laughs> serious time travel issues in this film. Yeah. All right. Yes. Future. Uh we we meet old Biff and we meet his grandson Griff and his gang. Andy.
1: How do brains work with time travel? <laughs> <laughs> so 85 Biff, who is supposedly still washing cars. He's like the one true Biff at this point, right? The one true Biff. He's also the Biff who ages to 2015. Now he's really old. Yes. Right. And he's the flying DeLorean. I haven't seen one of those in 30 years, yeah oh, right? that was, That's that bit. Uh, well, that's that's another thing that they added at the that
0: would have been at the end of the first Back to the Future, but they they have it here where he comes out to talk to Marty and he actually sees the flying DeLorean. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, on, as if we didn't notice that yeah, at the end of the well, first. Well, but don't get me started on people seeing things like a flying DeLorean and going, "Huh?" What is, what do you think of that? (laughs) As opposed to like, holy crap, holy crap, car, what's going on? (laughs) You know, it's uh, anyway. Yes. Anyway. Yes. This is the same (laughs)
1: Biff. Because by all rights, it's that Biff who's in the, okay, I'll say he's in the auto industry adjacent, right? He's a car detailer, but he's also an opportunist. And I have to imagine if he really does see the flying DeLorean, then at some point he should be connected to the evolution of flying cars when we get to 2015. Like, shouldn't it be Biff's, you know, conversions? Like, somehow that should be a, that should be noticed and it was not noticed and that's very frustrating.
0: It is very one true Biff. It is very frustrating.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, Okay, and then we so we have Biff and Griff. the The problem I, I just the problem I have with Biff is that he is given to know things that I don't think. I don't think he would would know Uh, in the first movie. We have a whole sequence where Doc has to teach Marty how to use the DeLorean and what all the gauges and buttons mean and the flux capacitor and turn on the time circuits and enter the dates and all that. But in this movie, Biff, old Biff, old one true Biff can just steal the time machine and go for a flight through time. Yeah. Apparently, and somehow he lands at
0: exactly the right place. He lands at the exact right place. He, he knows how to reset all the stuff so that he can go back to yeah. exactly the moment that he left from.
1: And the only the only reason he is he is told or he gives away that he was actually in the car is because his cane broke at a weird place on the stick. Like, there's no reason his cane should have broken like that. That was ridiculous. Uh, if anything, the knob should just pop off. That's what they should have found. But it breaks, like, the top foot off yeah, of this thing. Weird. How the hell's hell that happen? It doesn't happen. And that's the only reason that he noticed that things were—oh, and the receipt and the bag from the almanac that he stole. And that's the whole convention, that he takes the almanac and he goes back and gives it to Younger Biff in 1955 so that Younger Biff can start—yeah, himself— to earlier one true biff so that he can uh get real rich and that creates the fork fork in the timeline where he becomes donald trump
0: yes right all right and he's also playing griff in the future which is his grandson uh, i don't know who he ended up marrying as biff but uh, they ended up having a kid named griff and again, this goes back to what I was saying about the future and and the ridiculous, wacky version of the future they decided to create. I, I don't know what Zemeckis' direction was to both uh, Tom Wilson and Michael J. Fox about how he wanted them to play other characters in the future that were their younger, uh, their their uh, their offspring. But, but Griff is so over the top that I can never, ever <laughs> buy him, along with his whole group. But it's not just him. Michael J. Fox, when he's playing Marty Jr. and when he's playing Marlene, it, it's well, mostly it's when he's playing Marty Jr. It's like they're so over the top. I'm like, I cannot buy these as real characters. They, they are like really bad cartoon versions of characters. And it's like, I guess that's what Zemeckis must have been going for for the future. It was like trying to turn it into a real life cartoon, because that's the only thing that makes sense with any of these characters the way
1: they are. Andy, I think you're underselling how bad all of the future characters are. Because when Lorraine and George come into the picture, Ugh. I am equally turned off. Is Lorraine Every... exposition Baines? <laughs> oh my god, so bad! Like so bad what they did to these characters and and the like. What do you think the direction is? Not just for the the performers to get through these these sequences, but to the makeup artists who, like. I it, it was just it was awful and poor the 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 whole character, the treatment of Lorraine across timelines and the fork with a giant breastplate that she had to wear. Like it was it was <laughs> just awful. Just to
0: clarify, this isn't like a breastplate, like armor, like when you're wearing no. a breastplate. This
1: is a literal breastplate that she was wearing. Yeah, yeah. to make very, very large breasts and uh, <laughs> low cut. Uh, dress, which I guess is in character for what they were going for. It, it but fits, I just felt like yeah. it was not it, it didn't it didn't play at none of the makeup work played in, in this movie. I, it was really uh, distracting uh, to the performances, which were I think were already struggling to get through material that was that was um, off for me. Yeah,
0: they had a hard time with this film. I don't know if it was because they were still sorting out age makeup and the different uh, different varieties of age makeup, or the quantity of age makeup because mm-hmm. there were a lot more people that they had to deal with, not just uh, Leah Thompson and Crispin Glover like last time, but they had to they had to sort out. They had to do Leah Thompson uh, in eighty five in the the alternate future they had to do her in in 2015 um they i don't i guess we never actually they never had to recreate the the normal 1985 version of her because i think we decided they probably just used the footage from the last film yeah uh, but still, then they had to do Thomas F. Wilson in a couple different ages, uh, Elizabeth Shue in a couple different ages, Michael J. Fox. Uh, like everybody changes. I mean, even Charles Fleischer playing the mechanic ends up kind of going through a few things. The you know uh, Biff's gang. We see them in the eighties. They're all aged up. Like everybody goes through this process. And it just like there were so many people that they were doing like it just hit a point where I was really struggling with this <laughs> because they just weren't doing a very good job. And, and with the budget that they had, you would think that they would have been able to pull something better off out
1: of this. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Now, I want to say on the on the flip side of this, uh, there are some things going on in actually capturing these sequences that uh, is really, really cool. And I'm I'm talking about the the wonders of the VistaGlide motion control camera system. Did you read up on this? Well, I, I knew that this was the film where they really started working on that. And
0: the work that they did to capture the same actor In multiple places, or even just um, sometimes where the DeLorean goes from a CG flying DeLorean to a DeLorean that's actually in the shot, um, like, there were a lot of opportunities for them to do this, use that throughout the film, and it's uh, to great effect.
1: There were some sequences that were still used. This is very much the Jurassic Park, like, dinosaur uh, issue, right? Where some of the sequences are, you know, animatronics and some are CG. In this case, some of the shots are still traditional blue screen composites. And some of the shots are using this VistaGlide motion control, where they're using the computer control and the camera to actually capture sequences exactly the same multiple times so they can get actors doing the same thing. Shots of Biff and Griff Tannen with Thomas Wilson in the same scene. Uh, shots of any time with Marty and Mar- uh, Marty and. Martin McFly Jr., Um, uh, the dinner scene that we're talking about where uh, Fox is playing all uh, uh, Marty Martin Jr. and Marlene McFly, Um, all the Jennifer Parker duo scenes, uh, both versions of Biff in 55. It it just a lot of enchantment under the sea uh, stuff is is done with this uh, with this tool because they have, you know, they have Fox on stage. They have him moving through the the uh, scene as well. And so it is uh, – there is there is a lot of work that went in using this, and, and this movie was a launch pad for a lot of these sort of motion control uh, tools, and I think that is another really cool thing about this movie That is, yeah, maybe the whole story wasn't that great, but man, the tech behind it to make it work is really, really sweet.
0: Yeah. Now, I always like the moment where I think it's when the Delorean is flying down to land on the street in nineteen in the new night or the kind of crappy nineteen eighty five, and you see it coming down, and there's like a tree or a light pole or something that the camera's passing. Yes, and you see it coming down, and it lands, and as we kind of continue moving and pass the light pole, it's it, it the De- We see the Delorean land, and like on one side of the light pole, it's all the CG, and on the the other side, it's all the actual Delorean, and you see it because. I mean, it makes it very smooth the way the whole thing works because you see this DeLorean coming down from the sky, landing on the ground, driving in front of Jennifer's house, and then Doc and Marty get out of it. It's like, wow, that was, you know, it looked like they just got out of a car that was
1: flying. I mean, it's it's cool the way that worked. Yeah, I think it's really cool. I, and I do think that the, you know, handling, using this tool to handle some of the traditional split screen challenges, uh, I, I think was, was also really, really neat. And, uh, you know, having the, the two, uh, Thomas Wilsons in the car at the same time in the convertible, I think, you know, there are sequences that are just seamless, that just look fantastic. So, um, I, I think that the handling of old, of 1955 young Biff, I, I actually find I like the character a little bit m- bit more here because we get more of his like his relationship screaming at his his grandmother who is also played by him. He was also played by him. It, it's like screen doors on a battleship, like all of his little the the nuanced little stupid jokes that that he has. Like you know, I I found that I found that fun.
0: I I enjoy. Yeah, once we're out of the future, I I don't mind the the messed up 1985 like it's it's fine it it works i mean we haven't really talked about the fact that there is this level going through the first and second film of hill valley where like if you're looking in the background you're often seeing like is that like a a porn shop or like what like there's there's always like weird shops that i'm like huh that's a strange little thing to throw into the back of like the first back to the future like hill valley like that trashy of a town um, but like in this film, when we when Marty Junior comes home and he turns on like the six TVs on the screen, like one of them is advertising like um like it like what was it? It's like fake tits. It was. Did you see that? It was like. <laughs> do
1: you're right. You're right. Was, yeah, um, I remember
0: that. Like headlight. You could get like oh super inflatable tit headlight tit. And I'm like, this, <laughs> it's they're just awful. putting this. Like God. Like yeah. It just it, it. I don't know. I feel like there was this mentality with filmmakers in the eighties. We get a, we get a lot of this with some of them where it's just like, I don't know, I feel like they were enjoying kind of like this crasser level of of what they could put into their stories. It's just kind of like some filler material that was just there. Like John Landis, we see that in all all of his films, it seems. And it just seems mm-hmm. like there's something there. It's just like, yeah, they're just like, what are they saying about society or themselves that they're putting this into their kind of the backgrounds of their stories?
1: Well, I I think that leads to a question about Alt 1985, which is you know we get to this alternate 85 and end up on the doorstep of the the principal's house. The school burned down. He he's wearing his nightshirt and a bulletproof vest and a shotgun. Like it looks like Rambo. This is. He looks like Rambo. I mean, and, and we get the whole Alt-1985, like Gail says quite specifically, when we made this movie and wrote this character for Biff in Alt-1985, we were thinking about Donald Trump. Like we were absolutely that was the goal. And this Alt-85 is full of guns and biker gangs. And it's like it is like the peak uh, sort of uh liberal nightmare. And that's that's what we get. What do you think that they, uh, you know, is the is the message here? Like, it's crazy. Well, and it's it, it actually is kind of
0: interesting because in the
1: scope of
0: Glover's complaints about the the story being all about money and everything uh, about how Marty just wants money, blah, blah, blah. I, I think that this is certainly an element showing you that that's not what the message of the film is. You know, like if you use this just to make it rich, and it, well, I mean, I guess it gets into the wrong hands. But regardless, it's like uh, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if you're just making all this money, then it's it's going to turn into um, a you know a, a much you know less savory. You'll turn into a much less savory version of yourself because of right. of, of the way that you're abusing this. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, it is interesting. And I, I guess uh, my biggest issue, like, I think it's a really interesting transition that we get with that time period. My biggest issue with it, going through the whole thing of Doc Brown's ripple theory that he has with time is when Biff goes back in 2015 and gives that to himself, we should have had a ripple come through in 2015 where 2015
1: changes. You're right. This is that that is where the central logic to write Jennifer out of the story and their previously discussed time travel rules don't play well together. Inconsistent time travel rules.
0: Yeah, cuz you're you're creating these lines and it's just like and then and then Biff as soon as he gave himself that other thing, he would have like turned into like I'm rich, I'm healthy, my back doesn't hurt anymore, whatever it is, and he would know like because we keep seeing like They do this to us, where they give us, look, I'm holding a newspaper. Doc Brown committed. Doc Brown honored. It just changed in my hands (laughs) to this new version of my future. Why does Biff not, as soon as he gives this... This uh, almanac to his younger self, he should have suddenly like, oh,
1: I feel great. I am rich now and I am uh, the king of the world. Instead, he goes back to this uh, 85. He returns the DeLorean to exactly where and when it was supposed 20, to be. 2015. And he's now he's now having some sort of a heart attack like he's yeah, in, in
0: 2015. He comes back and he he gets out and he's instantly like, you know, yeah, like it was too much for my frail body.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Time travel, even though he didn't know how to work the DeLorean. Troublesome, troublesome um, stuff here. So, so many issues. The whole idea of, you know, like, of returning to your, this is another one of those sort of repeating uh, riffs, is uh, returning to your home um, and having the world changed again. The ripple, he goes in and there's another is an African-American fl- family living in his house. It's just like he was Robert Downey Jr. in the aughts. Wait a minute, what? Who's in my bed? That was that was good. That was a good a good call. (laughs) You know, they end up uh, riffing on some technology that's uh, that has played out. You know, FaceTime, wall-sized TVs. um, You know, lots of um, using your thumb to pay for stuff. You know, and open doors. You just got to open doors. You just introduced another big issue with the film do tell what what is this issue
0: Well you brought up the whole thing with the kind of the FaceTime the wall TVs and all this sort of thing and that is where in the future 2015 Marty senior uh we will we get this you know exposition Lorraine she does this whole thing about what happened to him and all this drama that he'd gone through that screwed up his whole life because he couldn't handle it when someone called him a chicken And, of course, we get (laughs) this whole thing with Needles and, again, terrible, terrible makeup on Flea as Needles in the future. And Marty can't handle it when Needles calls him a chicken and agrees to go along with this scheme and gets busted and fired and ruins his life even further the chicken element of the film Pete it was never something in the first film, and it is a huge huge element of the second
1: film and into the third film it actually it actually felt like I was being mandela a little bit like I actually wrote in the notes nobody calls me a chicken is is this a change in how the first movie did things I do I need to go back and rewatch the first movie because I felt like they were putting such weight on this how could they possibly put so much weight on This particular element without having it set up. Surely they would have set it up. I must be. I'm the one who's in the wrong here. I'm being gaslit. I know it makes you
0: feel that way. And shame on Zemeckis and Gail for making us feel that way, for making us go, wait a minute. Was this a thing that they were dealing with in the first film? Why is this?
1: Why is this this thing that is so emphasized Every time that it ends up getting in the way, it, it ends up becoming an impediment to the narrative at the end, like because he is such a moth to the chicken flame that he can't avoid it at every turn in the third act. Like he's he is drawn to to address it Yeah, because we get it uh when
0: uh, I mean, I guess it first comes up when flee when needles calls him a chicken and he won't quit his job although we get a sense that that's actually what happened back in whatever uh, exposition lorraine was talking about the fact that he got into the car accident because of broke his hand and that was the whole thing that ruined his whole career blah 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 but that was the whole chicken thing too uh and then of course we also get it later with biff at the end and yeah uh and i guess i mean yes biff calls him a chicken in the first film but never is it is it highlighted emphasized overemphasized the way it is in the second and third films when he gets
1: called a chicken but again that then that they suddenly in the third film when it happens it's kind of weirdly earned from the second film right when you talk about these movies being shot as a pair although it's been as long since i've seen this third film so no it's I'm interested in it, the third film it's it.
0: like he he grows past it i don't know it's just ridiculous the whole thing—it was just—it just feels so scripted, and that is another yeah, issue totally. with this film—is how how it feels so designed to be setting us up for the third film. Marty's a great shar- sharpshooter. Look at how good he is playing this video game, shooting people in the old west. Yeah. We've got the whole bit with um, uh, when he's doing the um, when he's watching, or at some point they're watching uh, a fistful of dollars. That comes up and we get the whole setup of the, of the thing that he's wearing. And what was the third? There was another thing that shows up as a, as a, as a, a nod to, hey, we're setting something up for the Old West. Oh, oh, Wild Dog Tannen. Oh, and then it's the, yeah, it's the it's the Thanks. history yeah. thing. Yeah, when he's, when he shows up in 1985 and he's like, oh, Wild Dog Tan." right, we have, suddenly there's a History Channel show detailing, uh, you know, uh, Biff's history. And I'm like, oh, geez, like these, these bits, it's just, it was getting to be um, so force fed to
1: say, by the way, guess
0: where we're going next time? Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Awful. Uh, I I didn't care for it. I didn't care for that level. Actually, you know what? Now I say awful, but I think that's overstating it. I think to my watch of it, I didn't find it actually offensive in any way. It it just felt it it just felt written, and I don't yeah I don't think about it that hard. Well, that's and that's what I'm saying is it's
0: not an offense necessarily, but. In a film that has these issues, it just, uh, when you have these things that feel written, it just ends up feeling like it's just another issue. Because so many of the things in this film feel written. And that's that's yes. what I find most frustrating about this particular film is it just feels so written. It feels like we've gotta get these pieces all all these different pieces have to get put into the right place so that we can end up getting to where we are, like the the you know, the guy at the end of the film,
1: Oh, I can't believe you're actually here in the rain in the middle of the night. Uh uh-huh. Yeah, I know that. W- although I have to say that particular nod, I really liked, like, I really, really like when they use that over time. And he says, hey, we've been we've been waiting for a lot of time. Western Union always delivers its letters. Like, I thought that was funny. I can I actually am surprised you didn't like that. But here's the
0: thing. Like, if this was one of these things where this guy from 1885 1885- <laughs> Or I guess it would have been it, it was seventy years before, so yeah, eighteen eighty-five. Yeah. If he had sent this letter Western Union to deliver in twenty or in nineteen fifty-five uh, to this dark corner on this street yeah. to somebody standing there by the name of Marty McFly, like the whole thing. Don't you think that – and if the whole office had a bet on it, don't you think the whole office would come out? Everybody's going to be there. It's going to be this big thing. They're all going to be there. All right, we're going to see if this thing – if they actually bought into the fact that this thing was going to really happen. The fact that it was one guy who totally can now come back and say whatever he wants to his team about, yeah, I totally won that bet. No one was there. (laughs) That's the problem that you have with it. I get it. I get it. It's the fish. It's the fish. It's the fishing story. They set this whole thing up with a fishing
1: story, and it just turns nonsense. (laughs) Well, I actually, I enjoyed that. The problem I had with it is that the car was there the whole time. Like, when you look at it, those headlights were not on, but there was a car parked in the distance on every one of those shots of Marty looking at the back end. (laughs) Why did the guy wait until the flying DeLorean exploded (laughs) to turn on his headlights and actually say something? I guess I should
0: announce myself.
1: (laughs) <laughs> like, like the the instructions were specifically you're going to watch a flying car explode and the guy has nothing to say to that. Like no nor do the generations of western union employees from the 1800s have anything to say with what's a car and why would it be flying. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I uh yeah, I struggle I struggle with that part of it, but I do like the idea that there was this letter because I like the I like it when they're able to use time for narrative beats like where I'm going to sit down and write a letter and eventually it's going to get to you right eventually I'm going to travel through time by way of patience like I know I'll be long dead by the time you get this letter but when you read it You will feel like I am still alive because I was just in that flying car and you're going to be able to do something about it. Right. Or you're going to feel like you can do it. And that was a good setup for the next movie. Like, I think that was awesome.
0: I agree. I actually I like the setup. I like all of that sort of stuff. Like there are elements in it that I really enjoy. Yeah. There are just again, you get these things like this, the Western Union guy showing up like and yes, I get it. in in context of what we're setting up here I know I'm arguing far too much because it's it is like it is essentially this ca- this cartoon movie that we're watching that we set up in 2015 like it is this goofy yeah. setup and again I like the ambition I like this convoluted story that they came up with to get Marty into this position where He has to get this letter from the past so that he can then go find Doc Brown again. Like, that ending is so perfect. I love the ending ending of this film when he comes running. Like, you have Doc Brown celebrating, and then Marty comes running around the corner like he's still here. And he comes running up to Doc (laughs) and Doc Pat, like that whole thing actually works exceptionally well. And so I have a great time
1: looking at what they do there. And Christopher Lloyd's reactions, his surprise reactions are always top-notch, yes, like, yes. when, when you, to your point, that particular engagement between those two is fantastic, and it's just, again, uh, you know, Michael J. Fox, I think, is just a, such a wonderful comic, young comic actor here, and, I mean, what was he, 25 when he did this, 23, something like that, like, he just has, So I, I was, uh, Leah Thompson, I was watching an interview with Leah Thompson, and she, her comment about him, I, I think this was more in the context of the first movie, when he was doing you know um, family ties during the day in this movie at night like how did he do it how did he do it and her comment I thought was really astute that as a young man he was like a, a coiled spring for comedy. Like he was so wired. He was, that was the perfect time in his life to deliver these kinds of comic performances. This was his peak. He was so, so good. And that means it cost him little energy to do great things. And like he he had such stamina. Uh, and, and I, you can see it in this movie. They put him through crazy stuff and, and now putting him through crazy stuff with multiple versions of himself. Um, you know, I, great, great props to, to, you know michael j fox for for his performance here and and thomas wilson i think they they do more with thomas wilson in this character even the -the over-the-top griff um he is he is doing he's doing a lot in in this style that while maybe some of it doesn't um doesn't hold up for me it's a little bit too far it doesn't no disrespect for the performances that these people were were guided to give yeah well,
0: and it, uh, you know, uh, Michael J. Fox was 27, 28. So it was later 20s when he was doing this. And Back to the F- or, um, Family Ties was, it, it ran until 1989. So I don't know exactly the timeline of when they were filming that last season, but it's entirely possible he was still doing that during yeah, this. possibly. And we should right. also say Zemeckis, who is a, you know, I mean... He's the filmmaker, uh, so probably a little older than Michael J. Fox, but he was essentially doing that same thing during the production of of part three. He was then editing part two, and so he was filming part three uh, wherever they were filming that, and then at night or as soon as they wrapped he would hop on a plane fly to the the studio to watch the the footage and and go through the editing process and fly back and he said for 3 months it was like nonstop just constant work and i mean i i for for him for Michael J Fox for these people who are putting so much creative energies into the stories i mean it's uh kudos to them for the fortitude and the passion to to really do this uh, even if there were you know issues with the creative in it you know
1: well and i mean you know we certainly know how that is sometimes we have to edit and release more than one podcast on any it's, given day and it's hard work oh, yeah. it's a lot it's a lot of work i fly to oregon and,
0: <laughs> and edit a show yes
1: area. that's a lot of time in a hole in phoenix um anyway all right yeah uh, anything else uh, hot on your list to talk about or should we move should we move on to the part i've been looking forward to the most Ooh uh i don't know with that
0: i think we should move on to the part you're looking forward to the most
1: well it's your part so should we do the credits
0: oh yes yes (laughs) let's do the credits we'll be right back everybody but first our credits
1: The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Midnight Noise, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Now, Andy, how'd it do at award season?
0: Considering it's a sequel, considering um, it's inferior to the first product, uh, it still did okay for itself. Nine wins with nine other nominations. It was nominated for an Oscar for Best Effects uh, for Visual Effects, but lost to The Abyss, which I completely agree with. We've actually talked about all three films nominated for Best Visual Effects now that were nominated this year. The Abyss, Back to the Future Part Two, and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Outstanding. Look at us. How thorough we are! I, I think they picked the right the right choice that particular year. Yeah, um, it was nominated at the BAFTAs for best special effects, and it won in that particular case, uh, beating out Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and again, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. The Abyss was not in there, oddly. Um, over at the Saturn Awards, we always like talking about the Saturn Awards. Again, it won best. Uh, special effects, so it's doing well for itself in the special effects category, which is great to see. In this particular case, uh, they have a lot of nominees. I'm just gonna... The other nominees, Ghost, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, RoboCop 2, The Abyss, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Total Recall, and Tremors. Woo! Wow. They had a full lineup uh, that time, so... Which is pretty interesting. Um, It was nominated for... Uh, best costumes, but lost a total recall. Interestingly, I'm not exactly sure how the Saturn awards scheduling lines up, but back to the future part three was also in the mix. And so I don't know if this, cause I mean, it came out six months later. I don't know if there's a, a case of like those two canceling each other out or if just total recalls costumes were really considered that much better, but it is an interesting thing back to the future part two was also nominated for best makeup but lost to dick tracy which i think is uh that's a great win for dick tracy and so um you know it it did okay it did okay for itself for the sequel that it is
1: uh how did it do at the box office Well, for Zemeckis' return
0: to the future and the past and the present and the past and the present, <laughs> uh, all those different things, uh, he did okay. His budget almost doubled from the first film, $40 million, or $82.8 in today's dollars. And I'm sure there were some savings in some cap- capacity, I guess, since they did shoot this back-to-back with Part 3. I'm not exactly sure how, since it was like such a drastic shift in the story for the third film, uh, but I'm sure they still found some. Uh, some savings of some sort this movie opened November 22nd 1989 where it debuted in the number 2 spot behind Harlem Knights, also in its first week of release the other new releases during that Thanksgiving week were Steel Magnolias The Little Mermaid All Dogs Go to Heaven and Prancer Valmont and High Stakes also opened in limited release Back to the Future Part Two took the number one spot the following weekend and stayed in the top 10 for 10 weeks. It went on to earn $119 million domestically and $213.5 million internationally for a total gross of $688.3 million in today's dollars, making it the third highest grossing film of the year. That lands the movie with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $5.6 million. Not as good as the first movie, but still
1: a handsome return. Well, that's something and apparently enough of a something to let them actually, I mean, what would Zaslav do? If they were making this movie at, at Warner Brothers today, the, the third movie would be axed like after the first 15 minutes is released. That's right. So, uh, well, I, that that's I, you know, it's still uh, even though my letterbox review, we're going to, as you will find out, has uh, deflated a bit. Um, it's still a part of a franchise that overall I like. And I think what my experience with it is it has a lot of earned interest from Back to the Future Part 1, I'm interested in these characters. I'm interested in kind of where they go in spite of the failings of this movie. What I see is failings of this movie. I so much love Marty McFly and Doc Brown and Biff Griff, uh, all, of the, all of the Biffs and Griffs. I don't care and, for the Griffs. Uh, Biff. i i'm okay with the griffs the over the top i'm okay with Ugh. the over the top cartooniness of it um it's it's crazy but clearly they were intending something and maybe it wasn't intended for me at this age did you catch this by place. the way did you
0: catch jason scott lee as one of his uh sidekicks in the yeah yeah i thought that was kind of fun you know yeah, it's, his
1: sidekicks are great uh,
0: yeah they're all right um it's it is kind of funny to see casey Sy- Sy- masco and billy zane in their Billy Zane, um, yeah. Their age makeup in the the Alt-85. It's, you know, it is. I mean, I agree with you. It it earns a lot of um, rewatch for me just because I love Marty and Doc Brown so much. I enjoy the characters and I enjoy what they do. There are elements with Marty's character that I feel they really flub uh, as far as the whole thing with the chicken nonsense and and some of the stuff that I just, I really struggle with, like, Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, I kind of agree with you know Crispin Glover. Like you know, he he seems to have lost his interest in this film about uh, being a musician. Like there's nothing about musician being a musician in this film at all. It just is kind of completely lost. He's just on this this adventure. Um, But it's still it is a fun watch. I do have issues with it. What really ends up winning me over every time I watch it is once we get to 1955. That's when I feel like things finally kick into high gear and I have a lot of fun with the whole um, last act of the film as we go through that that whole thing again from a different perspective. I agree with that. All right, everybody. Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, the finale of the trilogy, Back to the Future, Part 3. From out of the West,
1: in a cloud of dust, a thunder of hooves, and a mighty... Chris oh, Scott.
0: Oh, this is heavy. Indians!
1: This summer, Marty and Doc go back one more time for their greatest adventure of all... Doc's living in the past. God, try it, tenant. But he's about to be history.
0: What kind of a future do you call that? I'm going back
1: to 1885 and I'm bringing you home. It's the last roundup. Come on, run! It's the final showdown. Hey, lighten up, jerk! Where Marty makes a name for himself. What's your name, dude? Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. What kind of stupid name is that? Don meets his mate. He saved my life. I'm a proud service. And Tannen meets his match. I'll hunt you and shoot you down like a duck. It's Doug Buford. Shoot him down like a dog.
0: Michael J. Fox. Where'd you learn to shoot like that?
1: 7-Eleven. Christopher Lloyd. There's a fella that can't hold his liquor.
0: And Mary Steenburgen. I never, ever met a man like you before. <clears throat> Gentlemen, excuse me, but my friend and I have to catch
1: the train. This summer, Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis invite you... Come on, Marty! ...to the Rough Rider.
0: Rip Roar. <laughs> rootin' Toothin'. Straight Shootin'. Is a whole- it's a science experiment!
1: Rousing conclusion of... Back to the Future. Let the
0: festivities begin!
1: Back to the Future, Part 3.
0: We didn't say, Pete, that this movie kind of ends with the trailer for the third film.
1: Yeah, that's a weird thing. That's a. That was a very strange thing, but clearly building some excitement i could have used a more simple just leave it at to be continued or to be concluded what whatever it was
0: i i think honestly it was because everybody knew it was such a marketing thing that they filmed these two films back to back that i think it made sense for them to throw something in there just to show what they've been doing
1: well i it was it was cool but i it was a little bit unsubtle <laughs> uh all right. Uh, Letterboxd, Andy. It's time to do our to log our friendly reviews over at the even friendlierletterbox.com. And you, if you love Letterboxd the way we do, you can get your own pro patron ma- membership at Letterboxd with the discount code NextReel or just visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd and you'll get your 20% off. Removes ads, supports a great team of developers and our favorite social network for movie lovers. Uh, Andy, what did you wh- – where did you land? I have to give this film a heart because I do enjoy watching
0: the trilogy. And once I put Back to the Future on, I always kind of feel like, well, now I need to watch the other two. This is one of those trilogies where I feel like it is a trilogy and I want to kind of get to the conclusion. That being said, I struggle with so many aspects of this film. It's just, it, it is such a hard, there are so many things that are hard to get through in the first two thirds of the film. So I give it two stars, but it has a heart.
1: Oof. Ooh, interesting! Yeah. I'm surprised there isn't a sneaky half star in there for you.
0: No, uh, well, I, I, I will honestly I will there tell was you.
1: before our conversation,
0: and I dropped it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I when I went back in to review this movie uh, in Letterbox or to to update my log it to log it in Letterbox, um, it, it was review it was rated uh, five star and a heart, and clearly. This was back in the day where I was just going through Letterboxd and, and rating a bunch of movies that I had seen. When I, when you first got me to sign up. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I was just, I was just five star hearting it because of, I think the hoverboard and maybe Jaws. And <laughs> like, cause that was the stuff I was really thinking about. But watching it this time, it, it very much for me is a three star in a heart movie. So it dropped kind of significantly, but I'm with you. It's part of a trilogy and it's part of a trilogy that's right in the middle and doesn't have to be great. I think you like the third movie much more than my memory of it i think i was i i am really interested to see what happens when we talk about the third movie uh because i remember very little of it very very little of it
0: you you may not remember this but one of our speakeasy guests when sarah trost came on to talk about terminator 2 she said she had a hard time picking between her two favorite films terminator 2 or back to the future part three that's telling i like sarah it's a really fun film, Pete. I think I, I'm looking okay. forward to revisiting it because um, just... I don't Flying know, train. I, I think there will be some fun like, conversations yes. to be had. And Richard Dysart <laughs> pops up. And Richard Tysar. perfect. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so there you go. All right. Remember, everybody, you can uh, see what we're working on over at uh, thenextreel.com. You can click on our merch button and you can see what we have for merch. Uh, you can join our membership. You can follow uh, our Discord button and join our Discord community. All that good stuff. Check it out. Uh, and uh, in, in, in the meantime, we would love to know what you think. About this movie. Speaking of our Discord community. Hop into the Show Talk channel. We will be talking this week. About the movie. When the movie ends. Our conversation begins.
1: <laughs> Letterbox
0: give it Andrew. As letterboxed always doeth. Alright. I think, uh, I think you're going to go first and last because you have two. Oh, big okay. Cheater. So we're going to Oreo it. We're going to yeah, Oreo it. You're going to be think the creamy center. I'm the creamy center. <laughs> All right.
1: So I'm going to start with four and a half from Leighton Trent. What is Back to the Future Part 2, if not that stabbing, buzzed headache you get when you drink the slushy or milkshake too quickly embodied in cinematic form The first time watching this middle part of Robert Zemeckis' trilogy is a dizzying experience of narrative back and forth, lefts and rights and zigs and zags. But where the first film's seamless transition between setups and payoffs fade away, this one takes over with the sheer hubris of making you feel as though you shouldn't be able to keep up with the screenplay jinx it heaps upon you at each and every turn. The beauty of this one (laughs) lies in repeat viewings that provide such ample rewards in the details of what Zemeckis and company are doing in not only telling the second part of their story, but how they are Following the first and subtly setting up the final piece of it. This is by far the most comforting headache that has ever come from in the shape of a movie. And I doubt there will ever be another like it. Much less. A better one. Four and a half stars. Those are some big words. Wow. Big words. Big happy headache words. From You know, and I guess this is why I still give it a heart. (laughs) You know, because
0: yes. Yeah. Yes, that.
1: Yes, that. I agree with that. I just don't feel maybe quite so strongly about it. Yeah. 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 All right. What's your creamy center?
0: Uh, I interestingly also have, have a four and a half. This is by Shay. And Shay has this to say. Uh, jacket. Dried. Nike mags. Power lace. <laughs> board. Hovered. Paradise. Pleasured. Johnny B. Good. Marty McFlew. Dr. Emmett. Browned. Future. <laughs> backed. They
1: did that. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Well, I this is leaning in on a point that we discussed in the show, which I am deeply gratified to read. Somebody else actually agreed with us. Liam F. gives this movie four stars and says, does peripheral vision not exist in this universe or something? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Liam F. That is exactly my thought. Oh, and the answer so is true. no, it does not. No, it does not. No.
0: Get a free
1: audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextwheelcom slash Audible. It's the way to go. Season 12 was all about catching up on big franchises, some of which were based on books that are on Audible. Series like Twilight, with Twilight, Eclipse, New Moon, and Breaking Dawn, all on Audible. Our Train Spotting series has both Train Spotting and Porno, Welsh's follow up book that largely inspired T2 Train Spotting. We've got the three Lord of the Rings books. And our member bonus episodes, The Hustler and The Color of Money.
0: So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible.
1: Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content.
0: Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you.
0: So much great material available.
1: Dive in with a free 30-day trial at nextreelcom slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.